welcome to the Mission Recovery Podcast. My name is Maruf Ahmed, and I'm the co-founder of Quit Genius, the world's leading digital clinic for substance addictions. I'm going to be speaking to inspiring individuals about their journey to addiction recovery. Recovery should be celebrated, and the goal of Mission Recovery is to break down the stigma surrounding addictions and to empower others to live addiction-free lives. This is Mission Recovery. Welcome to the latest episode of the Mission Recovery Podcast. In today's episode, I have the pleasure of welcoming Erin Young. Erin is a behavioral health leader at Willis Towers Watson, and in a prior life, she also has extensive clinical experience working in teams treating addictions. She is a clinical expert in this space, and I cannot wait to learn more in today's episode. Erin, welcome to this podcast. It's so good to have you on. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you for joining me. For the listeners, it would be great if you could kick us off by telling us a little bit about yourself and your role. Yeah, absolutely. I am a consultant at WTW in our health equity and well-being area. So I function as a behavioral health subject matter expert for our company. And really what this means is in this role, I have the privilege of working with clients and teams across the country to address behavioral health, mental health, substance use disorder needs that fall within companies that are really challenging to address. And I get to help expand care for employees and general awareness of behavioral health and substance use disorder conditions. So that's a little bit about me professionally and personally. I'm a wife. I'm a mother of two young boys. I live in Boston. My home is Michigan. I'm a very big college football fan and a very big, uh, avid Big Ten supporter. Amazing. Thank you so much for sharing, Erin. And actually, uh, prior to this conversation, Erin's been giving me some amazing parenting tips. So I, I appreciate I appreciate those and I've been noting them down. Erin, you also have extensive experience working in addiction care. Tell us a little bit more about that. I do. So I am a clinical social worker by training. I have my master's in social work and my career started off really early around substance use disorder. And it's it's one of these memories that I actually don't get back to very often. But you know, my clinical internship when I was at the University of Michigan was at Toledo Children's Hospital in the newborn ICU. And it was really there that I saw firsthand the impacts of neonatal abstinence syndrome. So we had so many babies that were born to mothers who were struggling with substance use disorder. And given the nature of their disease, it really rendered them unable to be present for their babies. So during this time that I had this internship, you know, when my clinical work was done with other mothers, my supervisor would actually have me go in and just rock or provide physical comfort to these babies who, many of whom were starting their own early recovery journey on morphine drips and starting to acclimate to a world Wow. where they didn't have an opioid in their system. And it was just, you know, as you can imagine, it was just difficult to see, but so eye-opening and, and powerful. And so then, you know, fast forward about 20 years, since that time, I've done a ton of different things. And I've spent most of my time um, on the addiction psychiatry team at a hospital out here in Boston, and then working at a regional health insurance company, facilitating and helping with uh, behavioral health strategy, which included developing programs for substance use disorder that really directly impacted the membership of that health plan and you know working towards 
value-based arrangements with um, our providers in the SUD space. So, you know, somewhere along the line there, like I got my MBA specifically so I could begin working in some of those more strategic areas of behavioral health and just help, you know, start to deliver behavioral health and substance use disorder care a little bit differently. What a great career you've had there from all the way from the, from the mm-hmm. beginning and the internship all the way through to designing programs. So I appreciate you sharing that. <laughs> With your experience, Erin, I'm sure you've seen care delivered across both sides of the spectrum from mm-hmm. the great care that's been delivered to the, the not so good care that's been delivered. So yeah. I was curious to hear your thoughts on what you think the ingredients are for, for high quality substance use care. Oh gosh, this is such a great question. I mean, I'm sure we're going to have a lot of great questions here here today. Um, And I wish I had the answer for all of them. But I would say, you know, in my opinion, high quality SUD care first and foremost starts to treat SUD through a disease management model lens. We treat other chronic conditions in a disease management model. We use an integrated and a multi-level approach for those people who are at high risk, and Substance use disorders should really be no different. We should really be involving PCPs and specialists and ancillary providers like nutritionists and certainly wrapping in care for behavioral health conditions, which we know are just so common and co-occurring with with substance use disorder. I think that that's certainly where things start. And with those disease management models, we expect people to get better, but but we also expect some like peaks and valleys, right? Like with diabetes care, we expect people to do better on a better trajectory, but maybe like, you know, struggles with A1C or just, you know, general glucose management. We expect that ups and downs. And so we have to expect the same with substance use disorder people, uh, substance use disorder, you know, people are going to do well. We hope that they continue to do well, but we also just have to expect that they may have a recurrence progress could be slow, it could be fast, but you know, we really have to expect variation within their disease. And high quality care really includes robust availability of medication-assisted treatment, like peer services, true wraparound support, like really starting to have this inclusive approach as, you know, opposed to the you come in for detox, we get the medicate, you know, we get the substance out of your system and then we send you right back out to the street. Like that's we're just we're not at that level of care anymore. We just need to do things differently. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of what you said there actually resonates really well with me, not just like as a physician, but also in terms of like what we're trying to do and how we're trying to deliver here at, at Quit Genius. And like the integrated parts, parts of things, so important, right? Mm-hmm. Making sure that we're treating the, the member like holistically, we're treating that whole person and we're personalizing to their needs. Like you said, mm-hmm. like they might need a nutritionist, they might need support from other clinicians. So I think that that resonates a lot in terms of delivering that high quality care. But flipping the switch a little, Erin, because unfortunately, like the care that's being delivered out there, there's no hiding away from the fact that not all of it's perfect at this moment Mm -hmm. in time. I was curious to hear from you what problems you've seen with the substance use care that's currently being delivered. Yeah. So... (sighs) There's been a lot of problems with SUD treatment in the past. And I, I think, you know, as I was thinking on this question leading up to, to this conversation, I want to really start with this. You know, medical care and treatment is just constantly evolving, right? 
And it's really easy to look back and be abundantly critical of, you know, what has happened in the past and just what hasn't gone well. And in the moment, I would really like to think, and maybe this is a little bit of a Pollyanna view for for you and some of your listeners, but, you know, I like to, to err as positive as I can. But I'd really like to think that as we have been providing treatment through different times in history for SUD, like we've been doing it based on the best available information that we had at that time. You know, I mean, at one point we realized handwashing was effective and we should wash our hands, you know, and we should, you know, minimize infection. So we changed our approaches. And, you know, similar with SUD, you know, once we started to really understand brain chemistry and understand like the disease of addiction and the impact of substance, you know, substance use on the brain over time, we've modified our, our approaches. So unfortunately, I don't think that we've been able to adopt some of those changes in the, the, tr- Feel the small treatment field of SUD as rapidly as we as we should have, and SUD care in the past and and even to this day is really wrought with stigma, tons of misconceptions still that it's a moral shortcoming. There's constantly more boluses of funding into the treatment space, but still a lot of treatment is provided in suboptimal or maybe undignified settings that prevent people from wanting to get the care that they that they need. And, you know, then you add into that, you know, providers who are not always providing like altruistic or evidence-based care and making really disingenuous promises to really vulnerable people. And so overall, it just leaves a lot to be desired across definitely the history of substance use disorder treatment and some of the current care that we've, we've been seeing today. But we've been seeing a lot of great strides like in the right direction. And I think that there's a lot of positive things to come. And it like it makes me really excited about what SUD treatment is going to look like in the next, you know, year, two years, five years, in terms of like treating this as a disease. I appreciate the insights there, um, Aaron. And I wanted to double click on something that you mentioned earlier around a value-based care model, because currently one of the the challenges that that we're facing with the, the fee-for-service model that for addiction care is some people don't get enough care. Some people get mm. potentially too much care and others just get the wrong care. But one thing's for sure is that everyone gets an inflated bill and mm-hmm. it's hurting patients and it's driving up costs. So mm-hmm. there's a really strong case here for that value-based care model for, for addiction care. And I wanted to double click on that and get your thoughts on that, Erin. Yeah, I think that's so important. One of the challenges that we've had not just in substance use disorder, but just kind of behavioral health in general is really being able to assess quality outcomes, you know, in the way that we are able to do it with our medical counterparts. You know, I tell people this a lot. And if people, if any of your listeners have heard me speak in any other venue, I say it like this, we have a lot of great aggregate data around things like heart surgery or knee surgery. And we can really tell patients when they come in with a high likelihood, you know, hey, you're having a joint replacement. You can expect this during surgery. You can expect this the day after surgery. If you do rehab within six months, you know, with your physical therapy, you can expect to be back to baseline. We don't have those same quality outcomes because substance use disorder, mental health and behavioral health conditions are are not homogenous experiences. So my experience of recovery from a substance use disorder could be very different from somebody else's. And like, we really have to take that into consideration. And you have to think about that when we think about what those outcomes are that we're starting to evaluate. And oh, man, the value-based space, we, we tend to 
really fall back on those hard numbers that we like are easy to look at. So things like readmission rates, things like mm-hmm. ER admissions, you know, things like maybe even medication assisted treatment adherence. But like we are missing some of the other things that we know that are really important. So we know that recovery is sustained in the community, right? That like wash, rinse, repeat cycle of going back into high cost levels of care, inpatient detox, things that just are really disruptive for people's lives aren't necessarily always the best course of course of care. Going back to that whole disease management model, like we expect peaks and valleys, like how do we better manage, how do we better manage that? And how do we better incentivize our providers to do what's right by patients, by members, by employees, like whatever the, you know, the population we're looking at. So really starting to incentivize for what matters and how, but, you know, I haven't figured this out yet. How do we measure, how do we measure wellness, right? Like on a population health based for substance use disorder, like it's really challenging. Do you have an answer for that yet? (laughs) It's a good question. And honestly, I don't have the answer for that yet, but a lot of the principles of what you've just said there Mm -hmm. are like very much aligned in the sense that we need to align the incentives appropriately, right? And then once we can get there, we can get hopefully move to that the the improved, you know, quality of care, improved outcomes that are all around these uh, aligned incentives. Mm-hmm. And then ultimately the benefit of that is, you know, equitable care and then um and and driving down the cost, which is which is mm-hmm. I think the goals that 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 we want, that that members want and and providers and and consultants alike will want to happen. Absolutely. Like I think that's really important too that you touched on that too. Cause I think that as we talk about this value-based arrangement. And if you have listeners that are listening that that don't understand what that is, or maybe even don't really care, you know, that's totally fine, but it sounds so monetarily driven. And and it is to a certain extent, but like really you're right. Like the trickle down of that is better care. It's better treatment planning. It's better discharge planning in some cases. It's better mm-hmm. community connections and it's a better wraparound sort of recovery plan that really does translate to a better experience in this system, which like the system is so hard for, you know, especially like the US behavioral health substance use disorder treatment system is so hard to navigate. It's so hard to move through successfully, which is why we just see this patient failure a lot, which I hate saying that, you know, because it's not necessarily a failure of a patient, but I think that there's a lot of system issues that also drive that failure as well. Yeah, absolutely. And and, and touching on that in, in a bit of detail, Erin, uh, like if we even if we just look at the statistics, there's 21 million Americans at this moment in time with an addiction, mm-hmm. less than 10% of those people with an addiction will seek treatment. And there are a number of different reasons as to why that is. But one of the ones that, that you've mentioned earlier is really that stigma associated oh, yeah. to, to mm-hmm. go out and seek addiction treatment. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on another million dollar question, Erin, <laughs> on how, how, how we should be tackling this. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I've worked, you know, with, with the idea of stigma and anti-stigma for, for many years across like many different settings. This is such a good question. Stigma in general for mental health and substance use disorder just still remains such a problem. And I think that, you know, the first thing that we can do is definitely encouraging like open and respectful dialogue, you know, really acknowledging that mental health and substance use disorder are just as prevalent, if not more in some cases than other chronic diseases, but they also require the same level of of dignity and care and, and support. And so I think that, you know, one of the things we talk to employers about too is 
language is a big thing. And this doesn't mean this isn't doesn't just have to be employers. This can really be be anywhere. But this is both written and spoken language. It just has such a huge impact in, you know, even really unassuming ways, you know, getting away from things like addict or or crazy and speaking in more respectful terms. It also normalizes mental health, behavioral health, substance use disorder conditions. And to that end, I think that leadership engagement is is really, really powerful. This like culture, creating this culture of openness and honesty. What I have found that I have seen in practice is that leadership stories can be particularly powerful in breaking down stigma and just being influential and encouraging people to seek treatment. Like, wow, someone bigger, smarter, more highly paid, you know, than me has struggled with this. Like that can resonate really strongly. I also think this recovery toward or this this movement towards recovery and like recovery friendly workplaces has been a really positive thing for for stigma and if places of em- employment are confronting some uncomfortable questions you know head on it helps people start to think through some really uncomfortable questions you know like mm-hmm. how do we support people in our work family who know or don't know they have SUD? Like how do we support people who those, those people who are actively in recovery? Like what do we do for our community here to take care of our own? How are we making our place a better place to work? Knowing that this brings some level of inclusiveness and diversity into, into our workspace. And, and those experiences, I think really help inform like how we make our next steps for future people who are coming to work for us, future people who are coming to engage in our treatment centers, you know, around, around stigma. How can we attract people into our like locus of care or whatever that may be? So I think that there's a lot of different ways to do it, but I think that unfortunately stigma will just continue to be present with us. There's so many, I mean, there's cultural aspects of, of stigma across different ethnicities and how people think about that and appreciate getting mental health care. And, and this is where I, I really think this is so important on how like PCPs start to engage with, with people. Cause you know, if you don't want to seek treatment from a therapist or a psychiatrist, but you will talk to your PCP, it could be really impactful and a good opportunity to start to break down some of that stigma and get people into that care. That's so, so important. And I think one of the points that you've mentioned there, I think is super, super important. And it was the first point around like leadership awareness, right? And Mm -hmm. actually thinking back to one of our large clients where the CEO actually sent an email around around the fact that he's been sober for a number of different years and Mm -hmm. they're now offering this program that, that can hopefully help people recover. And that like almost awareness that was shared by that, but then also the relatability that, hey, like the the CEO of my company also has a similar issue to to what Mm -hmm. I do. And and it encourages people to speak about their stories and potentially get support as well. I was wondering like, because this is more on a like a smaller ecosystem level, right? So that might be a company of like 50,000 employees, Mm -hmm. but then how do we do that on a grander scale? How can we do this more of like a public health initiative scale and and drive awareness for that? So, you know, everyone feels comfortable sharing stories and seeking treatment. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that, oh gosh, these are such good questions. And they're so, I wish I had an answer, right? I wish everyone, like, then I would be making millions of dollars doing something something different, right? (laughs) I'm here to grow you, Erin. I'm here to grow you. (laughs) But I think that, you know, there's a couple of things. I think that clinically valid outcomes are so important too. Like, I think that as we, Clinical studies just have so much validity and importance. And I think that mm. as we start to do so much like really deep research around SUD and understand it, 
and get all that clinical validity behind it and start to promote that and other methods of like substance use disorder treatment and, and starting to normalize that, that information starts to legitimize the help that's being provided and like encourage people. Now, I understand literacy levels and intellectual understanding of some of that may vary, but I think that that's such a huge help and kind of that like really broad sort of like, how do we address substance use disorder stigma? And then I, th- I think that, that we've got some really great, at least like national, you know, here, but then like, you know, some global like initiatives think, you know, uh, organizations like Shatterproof, I know, you know, we've talked about Shatterproof before, but obviously SAMHSA and and NAMI, like to broaden the reach around how we're starting to to deliver, to deliver those messages and uh, like aligning with that kind of national and that global awareness. As I've seen many innovators in the substance use disorder space do and other companies independently or health plans has really at least put a stake in the ground around this is this is how we feel this is our perspective this is where mm. we where we stand and i think that that is a great step in the right direction too 100% and i completely agree with you in the fact that it's moving in the right direction i think mm-hmm. for the first time ever president biden reference substance addiction at at Congress uh, this Mm -hmm. month, which was unbelievable. And it shows that it's going in that right direction and it's getting like the awareness that it deserves. And I think hopefully with more of these great organizations and everyone coming together to to do what's right, I think that that stigma will slowly be broken down and that awareness will slowly be increased and it will really get Mm -hmm. the, I guess, attention that it it deserves, I Mm -hmm. think, to to help help people that are suffering. I agree. And I'm going to also do a shout out here to just like the millennial generation and like the generations after them. Like they've, so the dialogue that has been increased around mental health and substance use disorder in general, with especially this generation, I think that has encouraged so much more just like public dialogue and awareness too, you know, and being, you know, millennials being such a huge part of our population and also like our workforce. I think that it's a lot of people rag on millennials, you know, and like there's all these memes about them and stuff, but like they're doing some like awesome stuff in this regard. So whether it's transgender awareness, whether it's mental health, whether it's substance use disorder, there's a lot of movement that this group is is helping to make because they're like they can't be ignored. They're they're so important to our economy towards like so much stuff. And so I would say that they have been a huge help, I think, in just general message pushing for for stigma and you know, stigma and anti-stigma in general. I couldn't agree with that more. And I think, you know, with the technology platforms, social media platforms, yes. that, that's now possible, right? So yeah. there's there's really like great benefit to that. Um totally. one thing. One thing I wanted to touch on uh, related to stigma, Erin, was so the, the first challenge of, of stigma is actually folks going out to seek treatment. The second mm-hmm. challenge is getting them to seek it at the right time. Mm-hmm. And yeah. one of the challenges here is people often wait too long, mm-hmm. often, you know, until they hit rock, rock bottom to actually go ahead and, and seek treatment. Mm-hmm. So um, my question to you, Erin, is how can we promote earlier treatment for those that are suffering? Yeah, this is so hard. I think that to go along with that that point, NAMI is like recent stats, and, and now this is mental health in general, but definitely includes substance use disorder. I think they said that the onset or the time between onset of symptoms to treatment is 11 years. Like in that, that's crazy. I mean, you know, I think about that and I was actually just talking to an employer recently, but like, can you imagine like if you let your diabetes or your cancer or your heart disease or you broke an arm? 
you know, a bone and you just like let that go for 11 years, like what would happen? Like you'd be in a condition that we'd lose a lot of people, which we do in substance use disorder, you know, it's terrible, but you get to a point where treatment that might've worked earlier or might've been like so much more effective earlier, just might not have the same impact. Mm -hmm. So yeah, right timing is crucial, but one of the tenants of at least like social work is working with people where they're at when they, when they come to you and really being, having that robust education, making like breaking down the stigma, breaking down the barriers, having that education, communication and normalizing substance use disorder, mental health conditions, making access easier and simpler. I mean, this is one of the big things that we talk about a lot. It's access is one thing, but also like navigating a really confusing system. And as you know, if you, if you get into, you know, you go into an emergency room and you have a substance use disorder and you need treatment, they're throwing things at you like IOP, PHP, MAT, like all these so acronyms. many acronyms. <laughs> yeah. This is like alphabet. And like, you don't know, like, you don't know what you, all you know is like when you're sitting there and you're suffering, you need help and you need someone else to like tell you, like, how is this I do this? But then detoxes are full. It's just, it's this really, really hard process. And so access and navigation, it goes back to, helping to move people through a system and creating stability on that front end. Like when we create stability and people are stable in the community, it opens up beds. It opens mm-hmm. up that ability to access while we're in crisis. So this whole system like kind of really needs to like move and dance together to make some of those changes. But I think it's also really important just to realize that there's, for people to realize that there's no wrong time to get care. Like we don't want people waiting, but if it takes you months or years to acknowledge that you have, have a problem that needs help, that's okay. Like we're ready to help you whenever, whenever you're here. But also like if we're offering people help, we need to be ready to give it. Right. So it's, that's one of the challenges that I often see people are ready and they can't get the care that they need. And it's such a deterrent for them that they, that they abandon that like inertia, like moving forward. That's a really good point there because everyone's different. Everyone's going through Mm -hmm. a different journey and like the the right time is potentially you know the right time for them and that that right time might be different for every every person and also the, the second point that i really like that you mentioned there was around like the role that a community plays in this right mm-hmm. so it's getting people and promoting people to start that conversation earlier mm-hmm. with family with friends mm-hmm. with their pcp asking you know like okay fine you're drinking alcohol are you comfortable with the levels of alcohol mm-hmm. you're drinking is that a healthy mm-hmm. amount you know you've just had a surgery how are you getting yeah. along with those pain medications? It's been six months. Are you still on them? Are you sort of tapering tapering down from them? And I yep. think like having those conversations will allow folks to, to get the support mm-hmm. that they need at an earlier time, right? Just opening that door to those conversations. Mm-hmm. They're really uncomfortable conversations too. You know, I yeah. talked to, it's, it's one of the things that I have, you know, I spent a lot of time when I was working on the health plan side and I talk about this, this quite a bit is, these are really just still uncomfortable topics for people to talk about. This is when we talk to employers, um, especially, I'm like, we train our managers and our leaders and people to do a lot of stuff. We train them to read data and write reports and public speak and do podcasts and do all kinds of different stuff. We train them to do this, but we never really think about training people to like talk how to talk about these really hard things, mm-hmm. how to have empathetic conversations, how to have hard conversations. Like if someone is coming in and you notice a problem, 
how do you open that conversation? And a lot of people just don't know how to begin that conversation. I think there is a fear that like, if I ask you how you're doing and you come back at me with a problem that needs some resolution, well, what then what do I do? Like, how do I know where to, how do I know how to help you? I don't know. So then I don't ask. Right. And so it becomes like there's, there's so much just education that needs to happen because, you know, this world has been behavioral health and substance use disorder. This like, this like veil has like, you know, been around it. We just need to lift that and people need to understand how, how systems work again, like normalizing a substance use disorder. It's just, it's just like any other medical condition and we can get you help for it. Just like we can, if you have cancer, you know, or diabetes or heart disease, like we can get you help. And it's just, there's so many challenges around that. And like, but yeah, the community, like bringing that, that whole community and really empowering every part of the community to have that conversation and just be there. That's such an important point on like reframing it as like a chronic condition versus a choice. And it's mm. something I've been a strong advocate of for, for a long time, but then also sort of helps the the clinician as well, right? As we're yeah. peeling back the onions to mm-hmm. uh, the layers of the onions to find out what's actually underneath. Um, mm-hmm. That could be the, you know, hidden killer with the the, the substance yeah. addiction, the the challenges that they're facing from there, the potential comorbidities that are mm-hmm. resulting off the back of that. That, that substance addiction. So I think such an important point on the training that needs to happen there. And also like the, the awareness piece there around once that all comes together, then hopefully these conversations are, are far more frequent. And if they mm-hmm. are far more frequent, then there'll be far more people in, in the care that they need. Changing tack just a little bit. Mm-hmm. I'd love to hear from you, Aaron. What do you think substance care should should look like in the future? Oh man. Well, I think that telemedicine is here to stay for sure. I mean, I think that if there's any I hate to say there was a silver lining of the pandemic, but if there had to be one, we it launched sort of behavioral health and substance use disorder care into a little bit more of the, the 21st century, right? We're now really more comfortable with these virtual solutions. Like I remember when I was at the health plan a few years ago before the pandemic, we had some of these like early virtual solutions coming across behavioral health. And there's just a lot of squishiness around, does this work? You know, can this happen? Can they really like implement? A model like this. And now that I think we have a couple of years of the pandemic under our belt and we're able to see that this treatment is really working, I think that like the future of SUD care is going to be significantly hinged on telehealth or virtual sort of based solutions. So the solution like like Quigenius is providing some of the the digital therapeutic, you know, the prescription digital therapeutic in, in that world, like offering different kinds of access that are outside the traditional hours. IOP programs only ran at certain hours or certain times. Like your therapist was only in the office from eight to five. And now with telemedicine and telehealth capabilities, we have like communication that's different. We have hybrid version, you know, hybrid blended care that is efficient and effective. And we have people being able to access care from like the comfort of their own homes in a private environment, which has a lot of value, you know, still like speaking to stigma, like if people can't get by that, like it's much easier to to do that in the privacy of your own home, but also like on their schedule. So if I wake up at two, if I'm a night owl and I'm up at two in the morning and I want to flip through some kind of supports or whatever it may be, I can do that. I don't have to wait until a group at eight in the morning. So I think that they're like technology, like definitely plays such a huge role in this. And then I think just 
the wider, more available accessibility to medication-assisted treatment when when it's appropriate for for the diagnosis. I think it's been such a a challenge in accessing that for many people. For a long time, we had suboxone providers that had panel limit with how many patients they could could treat. We had difficulty getting people in to even like start suboxone or or buprenorphine. So I think that having more pres- you know prescribers available in a setting that that is managed contained with like you know the appropriate like clinical oversight is going to be really really huge especially in you know world i think that we just there's been a variety of um, articles that have been coming out like opioids are still like number one cause of death fentanyl huge problem there was i think just a study that came out that like adolescents their substance use rates are actually going down but the lethality of the drugs that they are using is going up. So, you know, just making sure that we have access to like medication-assisted treatment, Narcan, naloxone, like whatever, that's, I think, what the future is, is going to look like. And I think that, that it's interesting because it's like almost marrying a lot of things that we've been talking about in the podcast, like how we're going to break down the stigma, how we're going to make mm-hmm. it convenient for members. So they're hopefully going to sort of access the treatment that they need. But then the key point that you're mentioning there is the access, right? How can we yeah. make this like easy and convenient to access for members? So it's it's not, there's there's less inertia to go and seek the treatment mm-hmm. that they need. And they're more likely to go ahead and, and, and go ahead with that treatment. It's mm-hmm. going to hopefully be an evidence-based treatment and they're going to hopefully continue along with that treatment uh, as well. Yeah. And I think that's almost like a, a key thing I want to like double click on as well. And that's like with substance addictions, relapse rates are so, so high. And mm-hmm. when we have inpatient treatment, often folks go from having incredible care inpatient to mm-hmm. having virtually nothing beyond things. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on how you believe virtual care providers like Quit Genius within this addiction care setting are mm-hmm. able to help support members for, for a longer term, because we've described this as more of a mm-hmm. chronic condition. Yeah, so that's a great point. So I think medication-assisted treatment, like starting, starting there, I think that there are many people go into that process thinking it is going to be short-term. But in reality, it could be a lifelong medication for some people. And that is completely okay. Like you would never, if you were having type 1 diabetes, you would never just decide at some point that you didn't need whatever insulin supports or things like that that you might need. So I think that medication-assisted treatment ongoing is is so important. But then you're right. You know, we we sort of like drop off. It's this big drop off, right? Like you go from like IOP where you're going from like three days a week, you know, some hours a day in this kind of communal group setting where people are having these same experiences and the support. And then we're like, okay, you're done. You know, you're just going to go and like, you're going to check in with your psychiatrist every, you know, few weeks. And I think that what these like virtual solutions are, are doing now are they're like maintaining that in engagement. So that like virtual support piece of it, like with like the like-minded or like people with like experience, but also I think that peer partnership too of the lived experience support that people can, can rely on. Because it's one thing I sit here and as someone who does not have a diagnosed like substance use disorder, and, but I am a licensed clinician. So I could help someone in the therapeutic sense but that lived experience relationship sometimes has so much more and so much better effect on keeping people in in recovery at that time. So like if someone is about to 
hit a trigger, hit a real, a holiday is coming up, an anniversary of a death of, of someone in the family. Like I can talk about that from an intellectual perspective, but that real life experience is, is so important. And so I think that digital solutions are bringing those together with like a much, much longer tail and better like social connectivity through these digital platforms that allow people to, to have that better rapid access when they need it to potentially prevent some of those relapse, those, those crises, those trigger points. So I think that those are like some of the things that, that yeah. solutions like Quigenius are, are helping with in that Absolutely. way. And that's so interesting as well around, uh, and I know speaking to many members that, that have said the, the same thing, sometimes they value in certain situations, mm-hmm. the experience from someone who's been through it and hopefully come out the other end in a positive way, more so than they would speaking to a doctor or a physician with all their credentials, mm-hmm. because right. that empathy that that person <clears throat> can offer and say, actually, I was in that exact same situation and I did this and it helped, yeah. Uh, yeah. can sometimes be a bit more relatable and resonate a little bit better with the member. I know, I know. It's all, it's like that white coat syndrome, right? Yeah, it's like, yeah. you know, there's a reason that people talk to doctors and they seek out professionals, but but it's funny when we think about like all the life advice that we're getting from people. I mean, we just talked about this, like I'm giving you parenting advice. I'm not an expert by any means, but it's this like lived experience of having like young babies at home, right? And so, yeah, I mean, I think it's it's that application of that sort of like that social piece of it and like what resonates, like why that that value is really there for people experiencing substance use disorder. Yeah, that's actually a really good analogy because when, <laughs> it, when, when I was, when, yeah, my wife was eight months pregnant, we were just asking any like new parent, like yeah. what, what what's the one, what one piece of advice you'd, you'd, you'd give to us? And actually it was all really valuable. And we we made notes and a big Google doc of all, of all of the <laughs> advice that we got. So yeah. I, I like that as a, an analogy. Yeah. I mean, it's, but it's, it's so similar, right? Like you think about this and this goes back to like normalizing, like substance use disorder, disease is scary. Disease mm. is, is really scary. And you don't know what to expect. You don't know what to expect in terms of disease progression. You don't know what to expect in terms of pain and like withdrawal. Like you just don't know sort of what to expect. And so we do really rely on some of that, that first person that, that lived experience of like, whatever it may be. And that it's no different for substance use disorder. It's like, yeah. than it is for like any other number of things, whether it's like a medical condition, whether it's traveling to another country and getting out of your comfort zone, you could really apply that logic and that example to so many different things. And it really, like, when you think about it like that, I think it's just a new way to, to consider like how you use your supports and what they mean to yeah, you. Absolutely. And uh, I think that's why, you know, peer support in combination with everything that we've discussed from the medication assisted treatment to, you know, the clinician support is just so key to, to that integrated care that we've discussed and treating mm-hmm. that holistic, well, treating that uh, member holistically. One thing that you shared, Erin, that I wanted to double click on is at this moment in time, currently overdoses are at the highest mm-hmm. that they've ever been. And this is just, well, staggering to see the numbers. And it's also staggering to see how it's continuing to, to be on the rise. Um, mm-hmm. And as such, you know, substance use is becoming top of mind for, for payers and employers mm-hmm. to, to really try and solve this because also the amount of healthcare spend is increasing given the, given the rise in, in, in overdoses. So mm-hmm. I guess like what should employers and payers be looking for when they're evaluating yeah. solutions? Yeah, that's a really great question. So 
I think I would start off with this too. Like there's a ton of vendors coming into this space right now. Mm. And and in some ways it's can it's creating some like vendor fatigue, but it's also creating a like how do we know like who's doing what? It's can, it can be confusing for employers and payers. So really, I think that like first and foremost, and this is kind of the song that I sing for any solution, whether it's substance use disorder, mental health, pediatric specific cohort, whatever it may be, but like really ensuring that the solutions in this space are clinically sound, that they're evidence-based, and that they are based on current SUD best practices. And I mean, we have to give a nod to the fact that, you know, we just talked about this, like, you know, virtual SUD care is still like relatively new, right? But it doesn't mean that the building blocks of the of the solution are are not like well and tried and have good, good evidence. And so it's awesome, but it comes with apprehension around how these solutions are executed. And so I think that ensuring that these services, like what we talk to our clients about, you know, ensuring that these solutions and services are delivered in responsible, ethical, and provided, they're providing dignified care in a way that aligns to those best practices and evidence are, are so critically important. And, you know, many payers, you know, you mentioned payers oftentimes have the expertise in-house to evaluate those services, I mean, doctors, medical directors, behavioral health, you know, psychiatry. But if you're, if your expertise is not behavioral health, like you're in supply chain or logistics, like we can't expect you as an employer to necessarily like fully understand that. And so it's really important for employers to, to lean on those with expertise. So whether it's like people like me in consulting or, or otherwise, helping to get that guidance around that best in class vendor, like helps to care for their employees and implement the best and the most effective solution or like payer partner to bolster a network, bolster the treatment services. Like that's really what I think that employers and payers should be should be really keenly looking for. That evidence-based clinical sound, you know, program capabilities that that you're building. And leveraging experts like yourself, right? Who who have, have built these programs in the past live and breathe this. So you know mm-hmm. what, what, what you're looking for there. And yeah. Um, yeah, I completely echo what you've said there around, you know, evidence-based like principles behind it, like guiding mm-hmm. the, these programs from, you know, the research behind it, any peer-reviewed papers, accreditation, so is it accredited by a joint commission and things like that. So, so important because mm-hmm. although virtual care is new, there are still some of the traditional methods that still apply, right? They can mm-hmm. still be research backing it. And that's why we've invested so early in the in the research, the randomized mm-hmm. controlled trials to, to yep. ensure that this is as effective as the in-person treatment. And the results that we're getting are as effective, if not better than, than in-person treatment, right? So really investing Absolutely. heavily in those like research areas, I, I, mm-hmm. I think is so, so important. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. Erin, thank you so much for your time here. You've given some really, really good advice. And I think that's a, a wrap for today because I've, 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 I've asked you a ton of questions and I've, and I've learned a lot. So thank you so much for joining me today, Erin. This was such an oh insightful gosh. conversation. Well, this was really, so yeah, it was wonderful being part of this. Thank you so much. I think that you know, Quit Genius is providing a really valuable, valuable solution. So it's really nice to be part of this. And like, I hope that your listeners are able to take uh, something away from this conversation that was new, or at least like, you know, reinforcing in a positive way. And it's just, it's just great to be here and be, be part of what you're doing. So that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. And thank you for tuning in. 
You can find out more about Quit Genius on quitgenius.com and the podcast on missionrecoverypodcast.com. If you've enjoyed our content, I'd really appreciate if you could subscribe and consider leaving us a review. Thank you. Thank you.